The information and opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of ASRM and its affiliates. These podcasts are provided as a source of general information and are not a substitute for consultation with a physician. Welcome to ASRM Today, a podcast that takes a deeper dive into the current topics in reproductive medicine. Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Jeffrey Hayes, your host for this episode of ASRM Today. Today, I'm speaking with Tristan Reese. Tristan is a member of the transgender community and is here today to discuss the experience of undergoing fertility treatment to build a family. Tristan, thank you so much for being with us today. Of course. Thank you for having me. My first question for you is, how long has it been since you transitioned? Well, <laughs> sorry to throw a wrench in your very first question, um, but you know, often people think about transition for transgender people as being like a one and done thing, or like a, like it's a map, you know, you just like go to the different locations and then you've arrived at your destination. But it's actually more like a menu of options and less like a Google map. Um, and so, you know, many trans people, most trans people are able to access or want to choose or need a couple of things, but not all of the possible available options. And they usually do them at many different stages in their lives. Some people, yes, they're like, I got, you know, I did this, this, and this, and now I'm done. Most people though, it's more of a lifelong journey. And so I can say, um, I started taking hormones, which is one, one version of transition, one step that someone may or may not take when I was 20. And so, well, 20, 21, 22, it's a little murky, um, but that's now like 17, 15 to 17 years ago. So that's when I began taking physical steps towards aligning my body with, with who I knew myself to be internally. And those were the dark ages, as far as I'm concerned, in terms of trans, trans health and certainly with trans fertility. Um, so a lot has changed in those, those intervening years. Did the transition affect your reproductive choices? Reproductive choices is pretty different than reproductive ability and and even imagination. So when I started transitioning and uh, for, for a couple of years, I was actually taking testosterone that I bought on the black market. Uh, at the time, it didn't feel that way. It felt like I was just buying it from friends. But now in retrospect, as I'm like a grown up, grown up, I'm like, oh, that was the black market. Buying hormones from your friends, you know, not a good idea. And you're a physician, uh, you know, the endocrine system is really delicate. And unfortunately, you know, not much has changed between 17 years ago and now, you know, the, the, year, the early 2000s and now in terms of the trust that trans people have with medical providers. You know, we continue to see this disconnect between what the community wants and needs and, and what they need to feel safe accessing medical supports and what medical providers feel comfortable and confident offering. And I was really scared that I wouldn't that that I wouldn't that I would be denied access to hormones and that that would be a really scary and even traumatizing experience. So I bought them from my friends and then finally um, I decided to to officially transition when I got accepted into performing arts school. Um, I really wanted uh, to have my voice changes be managed throughout my transition, and so I went to a an, a, an endocrinologist. Um, and he made me sign a form that said that testosterone would likely render me sterile and that I would never be able to have a biological child. And, you know, at age 22, I wasn't thinking about kids. You know, I just wanted a beard. And so I happily signed away my reproductive rights. Um, and, I, and I thought that that was closing the door. Um, I remember specifically, he told me that testosterone would render my uterus an uninhabitable environment. 
And even though it has been almost two decades since that conversation, that, that phrase was just so stark that I, it has stuck with me this whole time. And I was happy to do it. I didn't want to have kids when I was 22. I could never imagine becoming a parent. Um, and then over the, the years since, I have learned that, in fact, that's not true at all. And that that having to sign that form and that conversation was actually not in alignment with the WPATH, the, the global standards for trans health. Um, and there's never been any evidence to suggest that testosterone causes anything but temporary infertility, um, and sometimes not even that. Uh, so yeah, my what I imagine would be possible for me has shifted drastically in the last 20 years. And what what medical science, what researchers, what academics, and what some providers are teaching people has has changed drastically as well. So do you and your partner still want to have children? Well, we have three. Um, we have two older kids who are adopted. Um, just a little over a year into our relationship, um, we took my partner's niece and nephew into our homes, his sister's kids. Um, you know, his, his sister really struggled to be able to give them what they needed um, in a safe environment. And so they came to live with us for a little while and that little while became a long while, which became forever. And um, we adopted them legally and became their forever family in 2015. And that was when um, we decided, you know, after the sort of dust settled around that, um, that's when we decided to learn more about what, what was available to us in terms of having, growing our family and adding another child that would be biologically related to both myself and my partner. And at that point, I had, you know, my friend Matt gave birth to his son, having been on testosterone for more than 10 years. Uh, and Blake just turned 18 that year. And so I, I had known for 18 years that transgender men had been having babies. Um, and then there were some more, this, you know, there was, there were some more public cases as well. But in the community, this what this is not like a strange or new or different thing. Uh, I I've known now several dozen transgender men all over the world, including in Vietnam and Israel, um, who have given birth to happy, beautiful children. Um, and so, because I'm a nerd, I dug into the research. I looked at you know what studies do exist. Is there is it true that we just don't know? And and it's not true. There's actually been quite a few very well run. Uh, peer-reviewed, evidence-based studies on trans fertility, on trans pregnancy experiences and outcomes. Um, and so my partner and I decided uh, to get pregnant and uh, I gave birth to my son, Leo, in 2017. So he's, you may actually, because we're in the middle of a pandemic, you may actually hear him in the background, puttering around our house, uh, begging for more stories and, <laughs> and playing with Legos. Well, congratulations. Thank you. Belated. I, I'm, I'm a little late, but you know, it's, it's you got a three-year-old right around. So let me let me ask you this, and because it's your your journey's been just so long and and this winding you know road that you've been going down, and you've you've had so many opinions, and I'm sure that you've met with multiple physicians and specialty care people. And, you know, our particular audience, of course, is reproductive medicine specialists. So I'd like to ask you a few questions about messages to our practitioners based on your experience and also your, your worldliness, you, you're very connected within the community. What, what would you like practitioners to know? What, what, what do you think is still a deficit uh, at this time? Yeah, I mean, at this point, as the Director of Family Formation at Family Equality, I've trained thousands of practitioners all over the country. Um, everything from midwives to nurses to embryologists, um, to acupuncturists, naturopaths, and then a lot of reproductive endocrinologists. And, you know, I can't possibly put the entire family equality training distilled down into a couple of sentences, but I can try. Um, and I think, to be honest with you, 
there, there's, you know, my, my professional background is in curriculum design and facilitation. It's teaching people and learning how to teach them in ways that they can integrate into their lives immediately and over the long term. And I really use a head, heart, hands model. So I try to really shift the thinking that people have by giving them a lot of information, knowledge, data, research. And I think that's that's a key piece is that people may have ideas that are outdated about whether transgender people might want to have kids, about whether um, they are able to have children. Um, and I think I really encourage people to dig deep into the, the most recent information we have about what transgender bodies are capable of and what pe transgender people want. Um, and then I think shifting to the, the heart, which to me is really the empathy. And it's twofold for providers. I think number one, it's it's really cultivating an attitude of humility. You may be the best in your field. You may have done this for decades. Um, sometimes it feels like centuries, I know, for those of you who've been in the field for a long time, because so much has changed in the field of reproductive medicine, like IVF is relatively new, and yet it's now the most well-studied uh, medical practice or procedure in medical history, right? But that's, we're like, that's like less than 20 years old, right? Um, so I think it's really cultivating that attitude of humility. You may have been doing this for a, a long time. You may feel that you are at the top of your game and get excited to learn more and to be humble, to learn how to best, really best serve transgender people, learn how to learn from them, how to say, how am I doing? Is everything going all right? What could be better? What could be different? And I really see there's two categories of providers. There's the provider who has this attitude of humility, who always wants to learn more, who's always really training their staff and seeking new opportunities. And then there's the provider who's like, no, no, I'm good. I've got this, I'm the best. Good for you. And to put it bluntly, I hear from your patients. They come to Family Equality and say, the forms weren't inclusive. They used the wrong pronoun for me. They thought that my partner was my mom. Um, they uh, used words for my body that didn't feel accurate to me and were very painful. Um, so there's that there's that heart piece, that empathy, that really that attitude shift around being being humble and being ready to connect with people and cultivate your lens um, of allyship for the trans community. And then there's the hands. There's just like the practical tools that providers need to have at their fingertips um, to be providing inclusive care. And that that really is about your systems. It's about advocating with your you know whoever's running your EMR or if you have your own. It's customizing it uh, so that you have better categories to describe the people who are coming to your work. It's all of your marketing systems. It's what does your website look like? Does your website have families that look outside of the norm? It's not enough to say like, you know, to stick a rainbow flag on your website or to have a picture of two gay men for your surrogacy agency. You know, you really have to cultivate that lens and imagine viewing all of your systems from the office space. Are there gender neutral bathrooms? Are there posters on the walls of families that don't look like the norm? to the pronouns people use on the phone, to the training, to your EMR, to your intake forms, to the packets people get. You know, there's all of those concrete tools um, along with, you know, the final tool is really trauma-informed care. And it's fascinating because when I work with alternative or holistic practitioners, they have been doing trauma-informed care for 15 years. When I work with endocrinologists, many of them have never heard of trauma-informed care or they've heard of it and they think they know what it is based on the idea they don't know that this is a whole field of study, right? Where there are five principles of trauma-informed care. 
and specifically the, the interface with the LGBTQ plus community, specifically the transgender community, is really, really, really powerful. And it's and it's and it can really shift the way that you are sharing power and control with your patients and helping them feel like they can navigate through your systems um, with confidence. Based on your experience, then, are there any cross-disciplinary measures should be taken for, for greater understanding by fertility programs? And what have you seen as a successful mix? Like making sure that, you know, a, a fertility program, for instance, is uh, talking to more psychologists or et cetera. Yeah, I think the best experiences that I've heard of transgender people who are going through fertility processes are aware that they're, it's seamless. So I can even just say for myself, I gave birth uh, at at Kaiser of Oregon and Southwest Washington. And a lot of people would say like, oh no, like that's a big HMO, you would just be treated as a number. I had the exact opposite experience because everything was in one place. So I didn't have to go somewhere else for a sonogram, not a sonogram, an ultrasound. Uh, I didn't have to go somewhere else to get my blood drawn, to see a phlebotomist. And you know, they they have in their prenatal clinic, they have therapists, they have social workers. And so from day one, I was able to see someone who was adept in prenatal medicine, you know, a, a therapist, a psychologist. Um, and she also happened to be really, really, really trans competent and transfluent. And so I got to have that all in one place. What it also meant is when I encountered a provider who was not aware of trans competence. I had a whole team of allies right there who knew me that I'd been working with. So I could call my CNM, my certified nurse midwife that I've been working with and say, Alyssa, I had a really bad experience with the ultrasound technician yesterday. She used the wrong pronouns for me. Can you deal with that? And she was like, sure, no problem, I'll, I'll handle it. Or going into the labor class, right? You know, you have to go to the, this class, which every LGBTQ plus, plus person says is the most heteronormative part of a pregnancy because it's like the daddies go here and the mommies go there. I mean, it, it's horrible. It is horrible uh, in terms of uh, inclusion for our communities. Um, and I knew going into it, I'd heard stories about that. And so I just asked the therapist, I said, you know, uh, Regina, will you call the lady who's gonna teach this class at Kaiser this weekend? And will you just give her like a 101 so that she's ready for us? And at that point I was eight and a half months pregnant. I wasn't trying to educate anybody while also trying to learn about childbirth. Um, and so there were many, many ways that that was beneficial for me. And I think that's what I really see out in the community is that people just fall through the cracks. If they have a, if they have a bad experience with one provider, they just won't go back. And the data shows us that 22% of transgender births happen in out of hospital settings. So freestanding birth clinics or at home. And that same year, the average American birth, less than 1.5% happened outside of hospitals. So 1.5% versus 22%. And that study, they didn't ask, why didn't you wanna give birth in a hospital as a transgender person? But when we look at the overlay of experiences of bias, discrimination, harassment, at times even abuse in med by, at the hands of medical providers, there's a disconnect. Trans folks do not trust hospitals, they do not trust doctors as a whole, I don't mean everyone, of course. And I think it's really up to medical providers to find a way to bridge that gap, to find a way to rebuild trust, to provide competent, excellent care so that people do wanna give birth in a place that is safest for them. Some home births I'm sure are safe and it's sort of my job to make sure that people have access to every option, including a hospital um, and, and have that be some place that they wanna go and feel empowered to, to participate in. 
are there any resources that you could suggest either for practitioners themselves or for them to give to their trans patients? And we will, of course, post these in our show notes so that it's accessible and that they can just click and, and go. Yeah, I mean, I've spent the last two years building a rigorous training ecosystem within family equality for providers specifically. And a lot of the, the largest, our country's largest fertility providers, CCRM, a couple of the RMAs, um, and including insurance providers. So Carrot Fertility as well has been through. And a lot of the fertility startups, um, such as KindBody, have gone through this training because they're really on the cutting edge and want to do this inclusive care. And, you know, as much as I want people to do it because it's the right thing to do, I also just want to raise that, you know, Family Equality did a study in 2019 that found that rates of, of interest in becoming a parent are almost as high in the LGBTQ plus community as in our non-LGBTQ plus counterparts. We want to become parents. We're really talking about an explosion over the next five to 10 years of people from the LGBTQ community who want to utilize fertility services, who need to use ART to form their families. They want to come to you. You just have to be ready for them. And this is part of how you can get ready for them. And the training program is completely online. And I think for right now, um, it, it's that's really great because you know, if your clinic is getting PPP, but not everyone, you know, if you're if you're getting support from the government to pay your staff, but they can't all be in the office, great. Get them ready. You know, get them ready for when things open back up again. And a lot of LGBTQ people have hit pause on their family building journeys. They're going to show up in droves in just a couple of months. This is a great opportunity, I think, um, to get ready. And uh, and I interview reproductive endocrinologists. I interview transgender people who've been through fertility processes. Um, it's, you know, I, I put all the studies I've ever found on trans family building or fertility in there. Um, so it's really a compendium of resources in addition to like an actual training program you can start and stop on your own. Well, this has been absolutely enlightening and wonderful. And Tristan, thank you so much for sharing your story and your personal experiences and speaking with us today. Of course, happy to do it. This concludes this episode of ASRM Today. For show notes, other information, and discussions, go to asrmtoday.org.